0: When it comes to the heart, there's much to discuss. But when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, there are more questions than answers. I received so many questions, not just on COVID-19, but also across the heart health spectrum. The diversity reveals just how important this topic is, and also how curious you are about how to stay heart healthy. We have Ian Patterson back with us to answer what he can based on research, including his own. He's a professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Alberta. He's also a researcher who's enrolling patients in a new study called the Multi-Organ Imaging with Serial Testing in COVID-19 Infected Patients, better known as MOIST. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS class on COVID-19 and the heart. Last week, Ian Patterson did double duty on the show as he talked about COVID-19 and the heart and also general cardiovascular health. After all, even with COVID-19 around, heart disease is still a leader in illness and death in this country. And that actually did lead to one of the most popular questions. Now, before we get to that, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I really suggest you go back and do so. We learned quite a bit about the aspects of COVID-19 and the heart you're not going to hear anywhere else. But more importantly, it will prepare you for some of what you're about to hear. Classes in session. Here's your first and most popular question. Where have all the regular heart cases and emergencies gone?
1: Well, that's an important question, and a question that we were asking ourselves and continue to ask ourselves uh, during the pandemic. Um, there's been, first uh, pers- anecdotally, early on during the pandemic, uh, in the certainly in the first months. So in March and April, we were noticing that our cardiology wards uh, were were running at half capacity, meaning that uh, uh, we have. Two twenty-bed units, and normally the, our units are full. And uh, during the initial weeks of COVID, there were only ten patients filling each ward. And so we started talking to colleagues throughout the world, and they were seeing the same phenomena. And uh, now there are publications supporting that. You know, during COVID, especially the initial months, there were a thirty to forty percent reduction in emergency room visits for heart-related illnesses and even other related illnesses. So what we think was going on is that patients, unfortunately with heart disease that should have been seeking medical attention were staying home. There are other people who believe that another contributing cause may that, well, maybe people were also healthier, Uh, they were staying home, so they were maybe under less stress or, or exposed to less pollution. I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that belief. I, I unfortunately think people were staying home. There is some recent data out of Italy now showing that, uh, uh, in fact, in the in the regions of Italy that were hardest hit by COVID, uh, with the highest number of cases, the rate of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests went up, which again, Uh, supports the notion that people were unfortunately staying home in the hardest hit areas. And it may also suggest that more COVID equaled more heart disease and maybe COVID itself was affecting these patients' heart.
0: We've heard that athletes who have had COVID-19 have been recommended to have their hearts monitored after they've recovered, uh, especially um, we've heard about this in sports uh, in the United States. Do you have any information as to why this recommendation exists?
1: Yeah, I think this is an, uh, an evolving area. COVID-19 uh, in athletes, probably the, the most common way it could affect their heart or inflammation of the heart muscle. Athletes are people who uh, exercise at very high levels and uh, they tend to have you know, more adrenaline when they're exercising. And patients that have had injury or myocarditis who, are, who are have you know, high levels of stress hormone because they're exercising, there's a theoretical risk that they could have more arrhythmias or sustain more damage to their heart, uh, especially during uh, the days and, and weeks after they've had this injury so generally, we've been in patients that have injury to their heart, who are who are athletes or who exercise a lot, we recommend that they do not perform vigorous exercise uh, in the first four to six weeks after they've uh, had their injury. And so COVID-related uh, myocarditis would fall under that umbrella. And we would just advise people um, not to do vigorous exercise during that time. And and uh, then consult with a healthcare professional to make sure when they are ready to resume exercise that it's safe to do so, and that their heart has healed like it should.
0: Would it be possible to maybe prescribe them some medication, uh, as we talked about last week, uh, that could help them to resist this as they're getting better from the COVID nineteen infection?
1: Uh, not to my knowledge. So, so there is no um, treatment that would specifically help the heart to heal from myocarditis. You know, if somebody did develop heart weakness uh, related to inflammation of the heart, we would give them the same treatments that we give all of our patients with weak heart, which would be uh, ACE inhibitor or beta blocker. So that's just sort of a general treatment that we give to all of our patients, uh, but it does not specifically target uh, COVID uh, or, or um, myocarditis per se. There isn't any sort of anti-inflammatory treatment available that we know of to help speed up the recovery or block the inflammation.
0: During the early parts of the pandemic, hydroxychloroquine was a huge debate when it came to treatment of COVID-19 infection. And part of the reason behind the debate was the risk to heart health. But very few people actually ever heard about what that risk was and were wondering, could you help us out? What are the actual risks to heart health from hydroxychloroquine?
1: Yeah, so hydroxychloroquine, it's a treatment that's mainly used to treat some inflammatory diseases such as lupus or other um, diseases that cause inflammation in the body. There were some indications early on that it may also help block some of the serious effects of COVID-related illness. COVID is associated with inflammation in the body, so it would stand to reason that you know a drug that we use to treat inflammatory conditions may also help people with severe uh, COVID illness. So there have been some studies, some of them retrospective, meaning that they've gone back and looked at patients who were happened to be on this drug. Or, or were given this drug during a COVID illness. And those studies so far have been uh, negative. People who are exposed to patients with COVID, if you take hydroxychloroquine, it's been shown that it does not diminish your risk of developing COVID. So some people have been taking it thinking, oh, uh, you know, maybe it'll prevent me from getting COVID. But actually, that's unfortunately not been the case. In hospital... There's so far no data showing that uh, taking hydroxychloroquine improves outcomes for people hospitalized with COVID. Another concern with hydroxychloroquine is it's a medication that can affect the electrical activity of the heart. And so people have been concerned if there's no benefit, could there be harm? There's been some concern that this medication could promote arrhythmias, in some cases dangerous arrhythmias. And uh, while there is some data showing that it, it, it does, in fact, affect the electrical activity of the heart, it does something called it, it lengthens the QT interval. Um, however, there's no data so far showing that uh, patients ha- taking hydroxychloroquine with COVID-19 uh, have had any uh, serious arrhythmias. So hasn't been any lethal effects, thankfully. Uh, but at the same time, no real beneficial effects either. So, yeah, so I think generally interest certainly in a medical community for hydroxychloroquine as an, uh, an important treatment has sort of uh, uh, waned. We're not really um, as interested in studying this anymore.
0: Now you just mentioned QT interval and uh, when you talked about myocardial infarction last week you talked about an ST interval. I imagine all of that has to do with those squiggly lines that we see on an ECG and I'm I'm just wondering can you kind of take us through what that actual squiggly line means so we have a better idea.
1: Sure. So um you know the heart is is an interesting organ and granted I'm biased in saying that because I'm a cardiologist but when I when I describe the heart to people. One of the analogies I use is the heart is a little bit like a house. Um, It's got uh, four rooms to it. uh, So it has four chambers, the heart. It has uh, two atria and two ventricles. The heart also has uh, its own plumbing system. So it has uh, arteries and veins that uh, supply blood to the heart and take blood away. And then the heart also like a house has its own electrical system. And uh, the electrical system is very important because without it, the heart wouldn't beat. Uh, We need the electrical system to tell the heart that it needs to beat, uh, in many cases, one beat per second. Um, And that is important because you're delivering blood, oxygenated blood and nutrients to the rest of your body. So the, the heart is the engine for the body. When we look at the ECG, What we're getting information about is that electrical system in the heart. And uh, normally, uh, there's areas of the heart that we call pacemakers. Uh, And when I tell you pacemaker, you're probably thinking about these little metal boxes that we put in people to deliver electrical uh, signals to the heart. But in fact, the heart has its own internal pacemakers that deliver electrical signals from the top of the heart down to the bottom of the heart. In most cases, those pathways of electrical activity follow predictable patterns. And so when we're looking at an ECG, we want to make sure we're seeing those same predictable patterns on the ECG. And if we're not seeing those patterns, it could be a sign that the person has a heart issue, that they've had a heart attack, um, that they have a disturbance of their electrical activity, or that they have heart weakening. And so we can get clues about that looking at the ecg
0: and as for the names of each of the parts of that ecg graph p q r s t each one refers to some aspect of what the heart is doing if i remember correctly
1: yes absolutely so the the p wave refers to a signal that's being delivered from the right atrium so that's where our main Uh, internal pacemaker is located. It's called the sinus node. And that delivers a signal sort of from the upper right part of your heart uh, down to the bottom of your heart. And so uh, the P wave gives us information, is that sinus node working appropriately? The QRS, that refers to the electrical activity in the ventricles, which are the bottom part of the heart, so from looking at the QRS, we can tell has somebody had a damage from a heart attack or uh, do they have any effects uh, of high blood pressure, which has caused thickening of their heart or enlargement of the heart from heart failure. We can also tell looking at the QRS. And then the T wave, um, that's something that we refer to as repolarization of the ventricles. And that also gives us some information about Uh, underlying heart disease.
0: All of that being said, an ECG is not just something that you can easily understand. It's a very complicated process, and it does take time to appreciate what the information is telling you. That being said, we now have the rise of the at-home ECG monitor, whether it be something that you put your fingers on or even something that you wear on your wrist, like a smartwatch. What is your perspective on the idea of doing ECGs at home versus uh, you know, making an appointment and, and having a doctor like yourself uh, actually look at them So to, to get perspective on what it means?
1: Overall, this is an exciting area of medicine. And uh, certainly during COVID, people have been looking at, and rightly so, uh, better ways to deliver medicine from a distance, And uh, this is one of the ways, this technology existed before COVID, but I think it's something that certainly is gaining prominence during COVID and likely I predict will not lose its place after COVID. So far, I've actually been quite impressed with the technology. Uh, So we're talking about small applications, uh, in some cases, watches that can detect and diagnose electrical activity of the heart. And uh, anecdotally, I can tell you I've had a few patients who have been able to provide me with recordings of their heart uh, during an event that helped us make a diagnosis of what was going on with them. You know, some of these uh, events are transient. They only happen over the time frame of a minute or two. And so they wouldn't have not have had enough time to get to medical attention to diagnose the problem. So, in that respect, it's quite valuable. However, I would caution you know if you do have if you are using this technology, uh, I'm not sure that the algorithms are are good enough yet to reliably make the diagnosis. So you should still work with your healthcare provider uh, when you're sharing this information to make sure that you're getting the right diagnosis. And potentially the right treatment.
0: You're both a researcher as well as a clinician, so you will have a very different perspective on the impact of COVID-19 because you're not just simply in, in a room or, or an office, you're actually on the floor. And I'm wondering if you can share with us what it's like to be not only looking to f- solve the, the problems, such as you're doing with the MOIST study, but also being there for the individual patient on a day-to-day basis?
1: You know, probably the, the main reason I'm, I, I'm in medicine and, and I do research is I, I really enjoy the, the discovery that happens. And, you know, discovery and curiosity and, and learning about new things that's something that happens on a daily basis uh, in all of our lives. And uh, one person once told me, if you could learn something new every day, you're doing very well. And uh, so as a clinician, when I'm helping and, and working with patients, I, I often ask myself questions, you know, is there something I can learn working with this person, something they can teach me? And, uh, and then sometimes that leads to bigger questions. And you know, uh, questions that end up becoming the basis of research projects and saying, you know, in this one case, maybe this is something that we can extend beyond this one individual and look at a group of individuals and see if we can and make a, a study to be- provide better treatment or better diagnoses. And, uh, um, you know, really, I find clinical care is sort of the crux uh, for research or for my research. It, it's what drives all of the important research questions. You know at the end of the day we want to be able to help people and uh, it's it's through working with patients that we will learn what are the most important questions that we need to be asking ourselves.
0: And there you have it. I want to thank everyone who asked a question and hope that you gain some further insight into how to keep your heart safe at all times. Now, if you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at JATetro or sending me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. And if you do want to leave me a voice message, just head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and leave me that voice message. Next week, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and the nervous system. This, too, has become an important topic of concern. You don't want to miss it. And that's why it's best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're proudly part of the Curious Cast family and are available with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Ian Patterson and his study. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dela Velasquez is our story producer. Sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.